This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to another show. I'm Seb Lozier, and this week we bring a decidedly Eastern European flavour with tennis greats in Russia and Serbia. But first, some news and confirmation that following on from a Chinese government directive, the ATP announced the cancellation of the 2020 China tournament swing. No international sporting events are to happen in China for the rest of the year, and as a result, the Rolex Shanghai Masters is cancelled along with the China Open in Beijing, the Chengdu Open and Zhuhai Championships. Better news regarding the US Open, with the USTA announcing that it is still planning to host both the US Open and the Western and Southern Open at the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre. And finally, on the news front, the ATP Coach and Player Fan Experience online auction has drawn to a close but not before raising more than 225,000 US dollars in support of ATP coaches affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. The biggest lot in the second round of auctions was the 51,850 US dollars bid for a once in a lifetime experience with Andy Murray at Wimbledon in 2021. Other big winning bids went for hits with Grigor Dimitrov and Feliciano Lopez. And even more for two hours on court with three-time Grand Slam champion Stan Wawrinka and his coaching team Magnus Norman and Danny Valverdu. And remember, you can listen to exclusive interviews with both Magnus and Danny in our podcast back catalogue or in our exclusives channel on TuneIn. They've both been very recent and welcome guests. The theme this week, though, is very definitely Eastern Europe and what about two former world number ones to get us off and running talking together with Tennis United host Vasek Pospisil. All right guys I am joined by two of the greatest Russian tennis players of all time Yevgeny Kafelnikov and Murat Safin. Guys thanks for joining. Thank you. Murat how many rackets have you broken in your career? Legendary racket breaker. How many rackets? Come on, give me a number. <laughs> Thousand fifty-five. <laughs> you probably, you probably know exactly. Ah, <laughs> uh, because I got this, I got the snowboard from a head, uh, head company, and they wrote it there. Thousand fifty-five. They count each one of them. <laughs> no way. That is actually hilarious. All right, guys. The two of you are both former world number ones. Right now, we have another great group of young. Uh, Russian tennis players. What is it about your country that it continues to produce such great players? When I became a top 10 player, basically Marat was uh, six years younger than me and he wanted to, to catch up with me. So we had kind of healthy competition between each other and one was driven by another. You know, we got three guys who are in the top 20 and they all three competing with each other. That's, that's the reason why the tennis in Russia is, uh, is very successful at the moment. It's a healthy competition because they are still friends. Uh, they go out for dinner together, and they are very, uh, very nice guys actually, um, which is good, which is good, and they're, and they're ready to learn, uh, which is also good. When you guys were playing in your generation, the Russians were you guys always pretty close? You know, we all we always going to be friends. We was friends, but uh, each each one of us were doing the uh, the own thing. You know, Marat had. Uh, 
his entourage that he was uh, happy to be around with and I had my entourage you know my, my team was only two and a half people <laughs> my mind too mine too so the same yeah. what would you say is like your most vivid most vivid memory of your career you know winning the slams at least for me you know reaching number one in the world uh, you know was was pinnacle of my career and then uh, you know they all they all mean a lot to me uh one of obviously is you saw the second one is uh, beating fair in the semi-finals of australia and then winning australia first one was unexpected um, and the second one was the workable one and uh, i had a few attempts and it didn't work out for me so it was like the third one i, I had too much pressure to win it and finally i managed it so you both retired relatively early um when did you realize it was time to stop Okay, so the, my career was like this. I played one year and I was injured one year. I was playing one year, injured one year, you know, half injured. So then uh, the big injury came after uh, I won the Australia in 2005. After three months, uh, and in the was I started to have a, a knee pain, you know. So the doctor said, okay, you know, you wait until the clay court season because it's going to be easier there and then you'll see. And it was getting, getting worse, worse and worse. And then it was, that was a tough moment to accept that I cannot run. Uh, my knee doesn't, doesn't, just doesn't let me. And then you start to have, a, to have paranoia. You don't want to play to be 10 in the world. You want to, I was thinking to be number one or top three at least. Uh, the other parts, other numbers are not interesting. Let's put it this way. In my, in my experience. I have to agree with Marat. Uh... You know the the, the one thing um, I, I never I never lost interest of uh, of the game. I I love competition, but uh, I I run definitely uh, the reason I stop. I I couldn't compete with the young guys because you know mainly what Marat has said we're losing the quickness around the court and uh, we are playing definitely you know for winning the tournaments, winning the titles. And I retired when I was 42 and still in the world. I could have you know played more years, but. Believe me, inside you feel like you you got you got no energy, you got no no business of being there to take some other spot apart from if you are not number you know five in the world. And simply that was my 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 my, my explanation of uh, you know stopping. I just couldn't I just couldn't compete with the with the younger guys. That's for sure. All right, guys, let's wrap it up with a little story from either of your careers. Uh, who wants to take it? Ah, okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say. Yes. So listen, yes. Listen to this one. Oh yes. Uh, so the tournament in Barcelona, Evgeny is playing doubles against Vacek. Oh no, he's playing doubles with Vacek. So Vacek is serving double fault. Okay. Evgeny is getting slowly. You know. Vacek is making the second double fault. Evgeny breaks the rack. <laughs> <laughs> No way! <laughs> you got it, baby! <laughs> I've never heard anything like it in my life. True story, yeah, I was getting that with my so double good. point. Yeah. Just the visual of that. No pressure, man, no pressure. Incredible. That is incredible. I have nothing to, nothing to add on, no more. That's funny. Our thanks to Vasek and, of course, Marat Safin and Yevgeny Kafelnikov. And if you'd like to hear more from Vasek Pospisil and his regular presenting partner, Bethany Matek-Sands, a reminder that there's a new Tennis United show 
every Friday, head to the ATP and WTA digital platforms for that. Staying with the Russian theme, Rebecca Adams has been speaking with Mikhail Yuzhny, who's now hard at work shaping the game of young Canadian Denis Shapovalov. But where might he improve him the most? Tough question because uh, before I'm coming, he also has the great results and he was already top 20. He played already the semi finals of Master Series, so like he played a fourth round of Grand Slam, so he's a great player. Yeah, now it's like, I think li- right now maybe a little bit emotion. He's always had the ability and the talent, but how do you turn that talent into, into tangible results? You know, he, I, I tell you again, he's the, he has a great game and uh, when he plays well, it's very tough uh, opponent to play against him. And uh, it's not like I coming, I say some magic word and he start to play. No, it's, <laughs> this guy, I tell you already, he play well uh, and before I'm coming, yeah, I hope maybe in the future he be a little bit more consistent his results. So you're going to instill a military style discipline into him, do you think? No, it's not military style, it's not discipline. I mean, the, it's uh, quite organization questions. Uh, if he, if he want to be great players, if he want to be really top, he must organize by himself, not only on court, outside of court as well. So I, I just can suggest him w- what I think about that and nothing more. Has it been difficult to make that transition from player to coach? Uh, f- I don't know why, but for me no, and because yeah, I'm retiring last year, but it's it was time to retiring for me. I, f- I feel like this one, but I'm not tired about the tennis. I'm just uh, retiring because uh, you know I cannot uh, be 100% already on court when I play. And when I play, I need to be 100% to try to get the good results. So it's not questions to play good tennis. The questions to to make the good result what I want to make and when I understand like my mind already far away from the tennis court when I'm on the tournament so I try to result but I'm not tired about the tennis that's why for me it's not tough and I enjoy what I'm doing now. Mikhail Yuzhny with Rebecca Adams and next is a former Russian now playing under the flag of Kazakhstan who's been speaking with Rob Curling for ATP Uncovered. Looping fine from Kukushkin, who's going to attack here. Digging out a forehand is Kukushkin. Good cross court there from a big. Oh, wonderful! Wonderful from Kukushkin! The cross court backhand brings up match points! I'm always looking forward to playing another year on the tour, and I, I hope I will be able to uh, get as better as I can. His game has taken Mikhail Kukushkin to the world stage and an ATP Tour title in 2010 in St. Petersburg. But it's a career that almost never happened. Growing up in Russia with limited resources meant he even had to train on the wooden courts of an active prison. I started playing tennis with my father. Both of us, we didn't have any experience how to become a professional tennis player. Of course, he, he is still a tennis coach, but not on the high level. And uh, he was my coach till uh, I was 17 years old. And it was uh, not easy time, you know. We didn't have a support, financial support, so for me it was not easy to travel. Sometimes I had to practice in the prison and it was a really tough time and not easy for me to get through. Uh, I started playing like kind of professional when I was 17, 18, just traveling not far from my country and uh, playing like small events, like futures. And I'm pretty happy that I was able to get through this uh, low level events and to be on the tour already for like kind of 10 years and of course what uh, was not easy but I'm glad that I made it. 
The sacrifices made by his family were very real, with the hope that one day he could make it as a professional tennis player. The whole my family, my parents and my sister, uh, when I was a young kid, they have to sacrifice a lot. They just believe in myself and they knew that I, that I would be able to become a professional tennis player and uh, with their support only, I'm, I'm able to play such uh, great events. When he was just 20 years old, Mikhail made the tough decision to leave his family in Russia and make the move to Kazakhstan to try and further his professional career. Not easy to, at all, you know. I just started playing professional, but I didn't know how to become really professional tennis athlete. That move to Kazakhstan in the end helped me a lot, but uh, of course I was thinking, should I do it or not? But the Tennis Federation of Kazakhstan, they had the greater support for the all levels of tennis and with their support I, I was able to improve a lot you know I become I would say I would say more educated player when you have such a big support behind your back it always improves and it always helps. Mikhail is determined to give something back to his adopted country and create a tennis legacy. 2008 first time I came to Kazakhstan I believe Nobody knew what kind of sport is it like, the tennis, and especially they didn't know the tennis players. Right now they know more about tennis. Uh, of course, the, I want the tennis to become number one sport in Kazakhstan. That's our goal with Federation, to bring more young kids on the tennis court. And I believe in early future we will be able to do it. Overcoming the many challenges to get where he has means Mikhail has developed a steely confidence. But his girlfriend Anastasia Usova provides the necessary off-court balance. For me, it's very important to have a support. And if you have somebody that uh, believes in myself, and if you have somebody that really thinks that you can beat anyone as she's thinking, then it's for sure it helps me a lot. You know, when you have confidence on the court, then you can do whatever you can. Sometimes it's not easy, but uh, in total I like it. And uh, it's interesting to discover new countries, uh, discover the world. It's crazy, but I like it. <laughs> the hard yards have paid dividends. So what's next for the 32-year-old? I'm not doing any more like kind of a ghost. I was doing this before, but uh, right now I just try and enjoy being uh, on the tournaments, being healthy, playing such a big events, and I just through, I try to do as best as I can. That's it. Rob Curling speaking with Kazakh Mikhail. Kukushkin. Still to come, we hear from two Serbs, world number one Novak Djokovic and Mirmir Kecmanovic, and we cross to America for one player's views on the social issues around Black Lives Matter. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. It's beautiful shot making, but it's also tactically so smart. Oh, incredible. Nadal took things up to another level. Would you rather be serving at Juice or Love 15 against Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer? It's five points in a row now for Djokovic. Or any other top ten player for that matter. Great defending early on though from Federer. Oh, he'd love to break the isner, serve straight out of the blocks here. When you're serving at Juice, Members of the elite top 10 like Daniel Medvedev, Stefanos Tsitsipas and Alexander Zverev are a big threat to break you. 
After all, they need to win just two points. From Love 15, their chances, at least at first glance, seem lower because they need to win an additional three points to break. On the other side of the coin, as the server, you only need to win two points to hold at Deuce, but you need to win four points from Love 15. This is an outrageous level that we're seeing. An Infosys ATP Beyond the Numbers analysis of the year-end top 10 from the 2019 season identifies the top 10 group was considerably more likely to break serve when returning from a Love 15 point score than from Juice. That is quite incredible from Medvedev. From Love 15, the top 10 broke serve 42% of the time. From Juice, the rate dropped to 33%. Of the 16 possible scores, Nadal was the top 10 leader in breaking serve from 13 of them. Djokovic took the honours in the other three, Love 40, 15-40 and 30-40. Incredibly, Nadal was favoured to break serve last season when he won the first point of the game to move the point score to Love 15. The other nine members of the top 10 averaged breaking serve 41.1% from Love 15. Djokovic was the top 10 leader, breaking from the similar point scores of Love 40, 15-40 and 30-40. When the super serve got a lead, he was ruthless in closing it out. What's interesting is that when the server fell behind Love 40, Nadal was only sixth best among his peers breaking serve 84% of the time behind Djokovic, Team, Federer, Monfils and Medvedev. From 15-40, Nadal broke serve 79% of the time, fifth best behind Djokovic, Monfils, Federer and Team. But the number one lesson to be learned is that when playing a member of the top 10, do everything you can to win the first point of your service game. You fall behind at your peril. So Novak Djokovic among the most clinical at getting ahead and staying ahead when returning serve. And these days we've come to expect a calm ruthlessness from the world number one when he's closing a game out. But there's hope for us all because it wasn't always that way as he told Vasek Pospisil. I remember the first tournament that I ever played in my life, the first competition I had officially, I was eight. Yeah. So I won like <laughs> eight, eight all, first match ever, eight all, tie break, 10-8, you know, I was backhand like- Backhand down um, the line, sliding backhand down the line. Exactly. <laughs> Passing shot. Stretch, full stretch. <laughs> yeah. um, I was, uh, I was, I was really, uh, you know, obviously filled with joy and everything, but I was very exhausted. And my mom was there; she hugged me, and then for some, when she hugged me, I started crying. And then the next day, I lost uh, to actually to Victor Troitsky, like nine oh, zero. That was my Victor my will love match. to see this. And then I and then I cried again. So I um, <laughs> I cried pretty much a lot when I was a kid. Okay, next question is: Who is the first person you call? after a big win mom for sure mom yeah, is always mom is always there uh in good and bad times truly you know cares about you you care about them and then you can kind of share the that moment of joy with them um intrinsically what is the first thing that you bought for yourself like the, a nice after a nice paycheck what is the first 
like treat if you remember i think for me it was uh, a jersey of like mm. of the sports club you know football club or basketball club you know boys boys in sports right what is the most physical well <clears throat> match you played i think i know i think i remember but you you it's a it's final finals of Australian Open in 2012 against Rafa. Uh, five yeah. hours, 53 minutes. Yeah, that that was oh probably that's oh probably there. probably hard to repeat that ever in in my career. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, oh it was, uh, that was the when you guys needed the chairs in the in the presentation, right? That's when you were sitting exactly. down in the chairs. And yeah. uh, and you understand that it's finals of slam, it's fifth set, and you just it's kind of the, the end is around the corner. So I don't want to stop now. So you keep pushing yourself mentally. You lose that sense of what's happening mm. in the body, and then it's something that carries you all the way through. It's quite amazing. A series of firsts for Novak Djokovic and one of his countrymen still experiencing many things on tour for the first time is 20-year-old Serb Mirmir Kecmanovic. Again, Ketsmanovic winds up for the serve from the far end, an ace down the middle, a fist pump from Ketsmanovic, a consummate display from the Serbian. I just like to play, I enjoy to be on the court and I just want to prove to myself that I can do it in the end. I started playing tennis when I was six. Um, it was on a mountain called Zlatibor, and my grandpa took me there for the first time. I mean, we were always close, but I think that that was definitely our thing. And um, it was funny because, you know, he was uh, trying, you know, a bunch of different things, you know, trying to see what would get him excited. And, you know, t we finally found something that was working, and it was, it, was, uh, it was a happy time for us. Well, I left home when I was 13. I went to Florida and definitely was tough, uh, especially for my parents, you know, they had to make that call and I know it wasn't easy for them, but I think they knew that it was the best thing for me at that time and I'm very happy that they let me go and, you know, to pursue my dream and it was obviously a lot tough, you know, I didn't really speak English that well, and didn't know anybody, so at the beginning it was... It was, you know, really tough, you know, to get through, but, you know, eventually, you know, everything came together and it was, it was really enjoyable to be there. You know, it takes a lot of things, you know, you have to, you have to be every day on the court, day in, day out, give 100% every time, you know, even when it, you don't want to or you're playing bad, um, you know, it takes basically your whole life, you know, to commit to it, um, you know, with the nutrition, with the mindset, with the the way you behave, the way you act on the court. Um, and I think also you need a ton of ton of people around you that can help you, that can guide you through it, because obviously you don't know a lot at that age. So I think you do need to find that balance and I think you just need to commit to it every day. I mean, definitely my parents, you know, they gave me everything that I needed to, let's say, have an opportunity to do it. And obviously my aunt too, you know, she travels with me a lot and she's a big help, of course, you know, with everything outside of tennis. You know, I had a lot of good coaches, um, physios, fitness guys, and I think it was, I was very lucky to have a good group of people around me that, you know, wanted me to succeed for me and, you know, just to help me and the, and the journey. It's definitely, I think, uh, and it's kind of like an escape route for me. Um, 
gets me, you know, outside of everything, outside of the everyday life and everything that I, you know, that, you know, somebody has to deal with. And I think that's uh, part of the reason why I like it so much, because, you know, on the court, it's you, you're by yourself, you know, and nothing else matters. And um, I also think, you know, just because I come from a smaller country and, you know, it's not as big as in some of the other places. I think that's why, you know, in the back of my mind, I want to prove that, you know, even though that you're from there, you know, you can make it, you can play good, you know, you can succeed. And we obviously have a ton of players, you know, to prove that. And I just want to be a part of that. Miamir Kecmanovic, one of the game's rising stars and now a product of the IMG Academy in Florida. Another player who's there is Michael Moe, 2019 was a tough year for Mo, fighting back from a shoulder injury, but after earning a first Grand Slam win at this year's Australian Open, the young American is hoping that a return to action is not too far away. Ever since the the halt to the ATP, um, a good group of us down in Bradenton have been training at this club pretty near IMG. So, uh, yeah, like four or five times a week ever since, you know, Indian Wells got cancelled, we've been uh, getting after it, so... It's been it's been solid and I'm doing good right now. Hopefully, you know, US Open and get started and, uh, you know, we can get back out there. What's daily life been like for you? Recently, we just started a couple of tournaments, like a couple of exhibition tournaments down at the same club that we were training at for the past like two, three months. And then for the past two, three months, we've been training four to five times a week, two hours a day. And uh, I've been trying to stay on top of fitness, you know, going on runs and I made. I even made like a little home gym. So just been working out of there. Still trying to get after it. As a professional tennis player, you haven't had what is this now? Three months off where you're where you're not hitting balls and you're not. I guess you're not hitting the court. What has that adjustment been like for you? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, just like training, and you don't have like a goal that you're trying to like attain. So like before, it's always you know train because you got U.S. Open right around the corner. Train because it's off season, so you got Australia, and then you got a bunch of tournaments after that. So like you're always training for something, and this is the one time where you're training, but you don't really know exactly like when you're going to be able to actually see the results from that training. So that's the tricky thing. Um, but I think you just got to think big picture. And um, at the end of the day, like tennis will be back at some point. And if you're ready, you know, if you if you stay ready, I think that's only going to help you. Like. If you took a bunch of months off and then just trained super hard for a month, I don't think you're really ready, you know? So I just tried to have that mentality and um, I feel like I'm ready for when, whenever the tour comes back. And you're also in a u- unique position in that you're at, you're training at IMG Academy and there are a bunch of other players there. Uh, like you men- mentioned, Kitsmanovic, Shapovalov, um, among others, uh, Sebastian Gorda too. Uh, how nice is it to be able to hit with guys around your your level um, and be able to train at a, at a high level? Oh, it's huge. Because, uh, I mean, if I was just solo and I didn't see any of my peers with me during this whole time, I feel like just on the motivational side of things, I think it'd be tough, like, just to push yourself every single day and then you don't have a goal to really, you know, see the results. I think it'd be very tough. But, you know, when I have Misha right next to me or – I'm hitting with Misha or I'm, you know, playing sets against Sebi. Like, I want to keep my level high so that, you know, if, if I do play sets or if I do play any type of, like, small competition, 
that I feel like my game's in a good place. So I feel like we're all pushing each other. And because of all of us like being together in one place training, it's, it's been very, it's been very beneficial for all of us. I feel like the quality has been high for every single training session. There is a light at the end of the tunnel now uh, with the announcement that the U S open is coming back. And I know your ranking isn't quite there yet, but in terms of receiving a wild card, um, how nice is it to, to have a goal? Oh, it's huge. I mean, I was really happy when U.S. Open said it was a go. I know a lot of people around my ranking didn't necessarily like the news, but I think it's, you know, I mean, do you want tennis at all or no tennis? You know, even if qualities is not a thing, I think it's just still good to actually see tennis becoming a thing again and, like, people actually competing at the highest level again. I mean, that's all you can ask for. And, okay, granted, some of the guys in qualities might not be able to play, you know, such as myself. Um, but still, like, without U.S. Open, you know, there's maybe no challenges next year. So sure. U.S. Open needs to happen for several reasons, and um, I think it's I, – I love the decision. Switching gears a little bit, there is something very important um, to you that I want to discuss, uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. Right now the world is in a very different place, and – this movement towards equality and social justice is just incredible. Uh, for you personally, describe the impact of this and what all this energy and support throughout the world means to you. I think it's amazing because, uh, like, in my eyes, the way the, the way I can explain it best is three years ago when Kaepernick was kneeling, like, everyone, you know, hated him. So many people, like, even a lot of my friends just, like, hated him, you know. And I didn't quite understand that because, like, I understood what he was trying to do with that whole message. And a lot of people just didn't. And uh, I feel like now with all these events that just recently happened and all the, you know, killings, the unjust killings that just happened, it's kind of um, woken people up. And now they don't see Kaepernick kneeling in the same type of way. And I think that's just purely based on awareness and uh people educating other people to exactly what's going on. And um, I think it's a great step in the, the right direction for sure. Just overall awareness and overall like education where like people know exactly what's going on in these communities and whatnot. I think that's, that's all we can ask for. And then at that point, you know, people are making their own decision, but they know what's right and wrong. And um, I think all the awareness has been great. And as you said, with education, uh, influencing change starts with exactly that. Um, what is the most important thing that you have seen come from this movement? Because it, it, if you agree, it's, it's different from anything we've ever seen before. Yeah. I mean, I would say just like how everyone united together. You know, there was a lot of people that reached out to me and said, like, you know, I can't necessarily relate to how you're feeling, but I'm here for you. And you know, if you ever need anything, any type of support, like I'm there for you. And just that type of um, support from like your friends and your peers. I mean, it's amazing. And um, it just makes you feel like a part of like a big family. And everyone got behind, you know, what was going on. George Floyd, everyone supported him. Everyone got together with, you know, even the simple like Instagram, you know, Blackout Tuesday, even though that's not necessarily like changing lives and it's not doing exactly what we want to do it's still raising awareness and it's still educating people that something wrong is going on in this country and i think that's something that they didn't necessarily realize 
two, three years ago when they were watching Kaepernick kneel. Michael Moe, a young tennis player, also a young black man with some very important views he shared with Josh Mizels. And for more of their chat, head to the video section on the ATP Challenger Tour website. That is it for this week. I'm Seb Lozier. I hope you've enjoyed it. Join us next week for more interviews and features from around the tour. And in the meantime, why not get in touch? Send us your feedback. Let us know who you want to hear from on Twitter. That's at ATP Tennis Radio. Or you can even email at studio at atptennisradio.com. See you next time. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review.